and I'm sure you'll be hearing much more about his experience, yes, in the weeks to come. But for this week, I once again have um, the honor of sharing God's word with you. And so we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, If you have Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 11. The passage should also be in your order of worship. And so we are going to read Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 29. And so hear the word of God. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness." If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Thanks be to God, for this is the word of the Lord. As we enter in now, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, for this scripture, for your continuing words. And though they are difficult words, even confusing, we pray that on the one hand you give me your spirit, that I may preach them faithfully. And on the other hand, give your spirit to all who are gathered here, that they may have open hearts and open eyes to see what is right in front of them, that the offer you have for them, the gift of your very self. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last week we began on sort of a, a heavy note by discussing, you know, the scariest film ever made, as it's called, The Exorcist. And so this week, I thought we'd begin a little lighter, on a little maybe more family-friendly note, by asking a question. And I have to warn you, actually, it proved to be a controversial question in the last service. I had to hear about it after service from a number of people, because it's a question that really reveals what kind of person you are, right? It gets down to the bone and marrow of who you are. So you ready? Who is your favorite superhero? Now, if you think about it, your favorite hero actually reveals a lot about you. For instance, if you name Captain America as your favorite hero, maybe you're very patriotic. Maybe you um, are very driven by duty, or at least admire those who are driven by duty. If you name the Hulk as your favorite, maybe you've got some anger issues you need to talk to someone about, right? If it's Iron Man, maybe you've got a little problem with authority, Well, if you were a kid when I was in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, really, there were really only two choices, two answers you could give to this question. You see, back then there were two animated series that were really dominant on Saturday mornings, back when you actually had to wake up on Saturday morning to watch cartoons because they weren't on all the time. I know that's shocking to some of our younger congregants here. But really, the first dominant animated series back then was X-Men, right? And to this day, if you ask me who my second favorite hero was. It would probably be one of the X-Men. It would be someone like Wolverine or even Charles Xavier. But even better than X-Men back then was another series, which I still consider one of the greatest TV shows ever made. And that was, of course, 
Batman, the animated series. And to this day, Batman is by far my favorite superhero. Now, what does that say about me? Does it mean I'm a little dark and cynical? I have a voice in my head that sounds suspiciously like my dad. Maybe, maybe not. But regardless, my affection for Batman has always ensured that there's another superhero that I don't care for, that I've never really understood the appeal of. In many ways, this hero is the polar opposite of Batman, and it frequently is his frenemy in the DC universe, if you know, if you're a comics buff. And that would, of course, be the big blue Boy Scout himself, Superman. Now, I have never gotten the appeal of Superman. Even as a kid, I didn't get the appeal of Superman. And it's not just that he's so sweet and cheerful, it makes my teeth hurt, although he does. It's not that his set of powers, his combination of powers, make no sense whatsoever, although they don't. It's not just that he changes his clothes in public phone booths, although however fast you do that, it's still wrong. Right? No, I think the worst thing about Superman is his secret identity. His secret identity must be the lamest in all of superhero dumb, right? His disguise is basically a pair of glasses. And I always wonder when you watch Superman movies, how do they not recognize him? He's sitting right there in front of their faces, and they don't see him for some reason. You know, as I thought about this, and the, Superboy fan, uh, the Superman fanboys out there will correct me, they did last service, that's what was controversial, But as I've thought about it, I sort of have a theory about why people don't recognize Superman and his world. And I think it's because at the end of the day, they don't want to see him. They don't want to know who he really is. They say they do. They say they would really like to know who Superman really is. But I think at the end of the day, they're so attached to this image of Superman as this perfect, godlike figure that to see him as an ordinary mortal... To see him as a guy with a job, with worries and doubts and fears, to see him weep, it would dash their expectations. And so it's easier, in a sense, to cling to their idol than to see the truth. And so they don't see him because they don't want to. That theme of not seeing something that's right in front of your eyes because you don't want to is very much at the heart of the passage we're going to read this morning, the, the scripture this morning. This morning we're going to sort of confront... A mystery. Why is it that people don't recognize who Jesus is? Jesus is right in front of their faces. He's even telling them who he is, and yet they don't see it. They don't recognize him. And I think it really does all come down to their expectations. This morning we're going to see the crowd around Jesus struggle with three questions. The first is a question of sincerity. The second is a question of identity. And finally, there is a question of Desire, And as Jesus proceeds to answer these questions, the people begin to divide into two groups. On the one hand, there are those people who are are clinging to their expectations, their ideas about God and God's kingdom. And because they cling to them, they can't see God at work. They can't see Jesus or recognize him. And on the other hand, there are people who are willing to have their expectations dashed, to have their expectations completely shattered and remade, around the person and work of Jesus. And so our task this morning, then, is to decide which group are we going to belong to, the people clinging to their own expectations or the people who have their expectations remade around Jesus. And so we are going to begin, then, with that first question, a question of sincerity. Look closely at verses 29 through 30. I'm going to read them again real briefly. 
29 through 30. Jesus says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, this conversation, these words of Jesus flow directly from what we saw last week. Jesus is still talking to the Pharisees. You notice it says right at the beginning that the crowds are increasing. In other words, it seems like people are being drawn to this scene. Remember what happened last week. Jesus cast out a demon, right? And in response to that miracle, the Pharisees accuse him of being in league with Satan. Right? And so the temperature is already pretty warm in this conversation. How does it really get worse than that, as we'll see? And people are beginning to flock to the scene. They're, they're attracted by it. And, and sure enough, Jesus at this point has sort of had enough. They've accused him of being in league with Satan. And you notice he sort of exclaims, this generation is an evil generation. And why are they evil, Jesus says? It's because they seek for a sign. In other words, the Pharisees are demanding proof from Jesus that he is who he says he is. They're saying, Jesus, show us something. Show us something so big, so impressive, that we can't doubt anymore. Give us a sign. And here it might actually be possible to sympathize with the Pharisees. I mean, maybe they're just sincerely struggling. Maybe, you know, Jesus is a lot to take in. Maybe they just need some help. They're sincere in this request. Well, the first clue that that is not the case, that in fact the request is insincere, is just to stop and consider what has happened. Jesus has just cast out a demon. He has just defeated the powers of evil. What clearer sign could there be that that he is in fact from God? And how do they respond to this sign? By accusing him of being in league with Beelzebul or Satan. In other words, the Pharisees are not people with open minds. They're not people who are sincerely seeking the truth. And Jesus doesn't treat them that way. You notice his retort. He says, no sign will be given to this generation save the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, at this point we have to pause and ask, why Jonah? Why does Jesus bring up the Old Testament story of Jonah? How is the story of Jonah a sign to the Pharisees in his whole in his own day? And I think really understanding how Jesus is using the story of Jonah is the key to unlocking this whole passage. It really everything hinges on this. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jonah, you might actually be in a better place than many Christians. You know, I didn't grow up in the church. I never went to Sunday school. And so for me, the, the whole concept of talking vegetables is a little creepy, right? I mean, how, how do you give a kid a salad after they've formed a relationship with a tomato and a cucumber? I don't know if that would be traumatic or not. But I, if you've seen the VeggieTales movie, I just want you to, to sort of put that aside, to clear VeggieTales out of your head when we talk about Jonah. Because in truth, Jonah is one of the grimmest books in the entire Bible. Jonah is one of the grimmest stories in Scripture because Jonah is fundamentally the story of a man who is consumed by hatred. Now, if you've read the book of Jonah, you know that right at the beginning, God comes to Jonah and says, go to the people of Nineveh and preach repentance. Right? The city of Nineveh at this time is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it is the mortal enemy 
of Israel. The Assyrians have brutalized the Israelites. The Assyrians were known to be brutal even in an age of brutality, even in the ancient world where things were a lot nastier than they are today. I really can't even describe some of the things the Assyrians were famous for. I mean, for instance, they were famous for putting the heads of their of towns they would conquer. They would put the heads of all the people on the walls in order to warn people of their power. And the people they did not brutalize, they enslaved, right? Women, children, and others. And Jonah would have known people. Jonah might have had family members who had suffered this kind of fate at the hands of the Assyrians. And so when God comes to Jonah and says, go preach repentance to Nineveh, Jonah says, um, no. And so he boards a ship that's going in the complete opposite direction from Nineveh. But it's not long before Jonah figures out that he cannot outrun God. While at sea, God sends a storm to buffet Jonah's ship. And Jonah realizes he's not going to be able to outrun God. His back is against the wall. God is not going to let it go, but will continue to pursue him. And so Jonah does the only thing he thinks he can do at that point. You have to understand that in ancient uh, Hebrew thought, in, in ancient thought, the ocean represents chaos and evil. If you've read the books of Daniel or Revelation, where do all the monsters and enemies of God come from? Well, they come from the sea. In that worldview, the ocean was a chaotic, evil place. In other words, the ocean represents hell in the biblical worldview, at least symbolically it represents hell. And so Jonah basically says to the Lord at that point, Lord, I would rather rot in hell than obey you in this. I am not going to Nineveh. And so he plunges himself into the abyss. And he's immediately swallowed by a sea monster. The Hebrew word does not mean whale. We're not actually sure what it means, but it probably means something like sea monster. And as those jaws are closing in on Jonah, I wonder what his last thought was. Maybe he thought, well, this is bad, but at least here I'm free. Here, God will not be able to get me. In this darkness, not even God will be able to to find me. And if that was Jonah's last thought, then Jonah would have been wrong. For God demonstrates that he has power even over evil and chaos. He preserves Jonah in the abyss, keeps him alive. And three days later, he brings him out, has him belched upon the shore by the sea monster. And it's interesting, after this three days in hell, basically, Jonah's a lot more flexible Right? Apparently, hell is not all it's cracked up to be. And so Jonah does finally agree to go to Nineveh. And he preaches repentance to them. And wouldn't you know it? They repent. They avert the, the disaster God was going to bring on that city because they respond to the word of God in faith. At least that generation of Ninevites do. And the story from that point ends on sort of an ambiguous note. We want to we hope the best for Jonah, Right? But he ends the story furious at God. He's furious that God has shown mercy to the Ninevites. And according to Jonah's expectations, he cannot fathom why God would show mercy to the brutal Assyrians, to his enemies. You might say that the kingdom of God is happening right in front of Jonah's eyes. The gospel is happening right in front of Jonah's eyes. Enemies are being reconciled. Peace and grace is being preached to the nations. And Jonah can't see it. He can't see it because at the end of the day, he doesn't want to see it. Because it's so contrary to his expectations. 
Now, what does all of that have to do with Jesus and the Pharisees? How does the story you just heard function as a sign in the New Testament? Well, I think it does so in at least two ways, and it really depends on what kind of person you are. If you're a person, on the one hand, like the Ninevites in the story, if you're a person who's open, who can receive the word of God in faith, then the sign of Jonah is a sign of great hope. It's a sign that God has power even over darkness, even the darkness and the sin in you. And that there is no darkness too dark for God to bring victory out of it. That God can overcome the darkness in your life. It also points us to the story of Jesus, who also ascended into the abyss like Jonah by dying on the cross. And like Jonah, but even more gloriously, comes forth on the third day in resurrected glory. In other words, the sign of Jonah is the gospel. It's the gospel for, for Ninevites, for people who were enemies of God but now are reconciled. People, in other words, like you and me. Now, there's another way, though, that the the sign of Jonah can be interpreted or the way it can function. And that's if you're a person who, like in the story, is like Jonah. You're a person who's clinging to his or her own expectations about God or the kingdom of God, and, and you just won't let them go. In that case, the sign of Jonah is a warning It's a warning that it's possible to have God's power happen before your very eyes. God can literally lead a man down to hell and bring him back again before your very eyes, and you won't see it. You won't recognize it as the work of God, because at the end of the day, you don't want to. You'd rather remain in your own expectations, and so you were blind to the work of God. The sign of Jonah in that case is a warning. And I think it's in the second sense as a warning that Jesus offers the sign to the Pharisees. And why does he offer them this warning? Well, that's because the Pharisees are sort of obsessed with the second question we need to ask this morning. And that is the question of identity. Last week, if you were here, we saw that the Pharisees in New Testament times saw themselves as agents of unity within Israel. They're trying to unite all of Israel around a common goal, and that is obeying the law, about doing good, being righteous according to Torah. And underlying that quest to unite Israel is a question, right, that they're constantly asking, and that is, who are the real people of God? Who are the people of God and how do you identify them? You might say, actually, that the Pharisees are obsessed with insiders and outsiders. They're always asking who is inside God's grace, who's inside God's favor, and who are outside. And the answer they give to that question is more or less themselves. They say, look at us, law-abiding, righteous Israelites. We're the ones who are inside We can expect God's favor and God's grace. Everyone else is outside. They are outside. They are enemies of God. And it's just at that point, just at that assumption that they make, that Jesus challenges them. I want to look closely at verses 31 through 32, which I'm going to read now. Jesus continues, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus has now, with these words, raised the temperature to like maximum level. He's taken it all the way up to the highest 
He's basically saying to the Pharisees, Pharisees, you are obsessed with sorting people out. You're sorting people into insiders and outsiders. And so let's take a look at the ultimate sorting out. Let's look at the judgment. Now you have to understand what Jesus means by judgment here. He does not mean what happens to people directly after they die. In other words, he's not talking about souls going to heaven or hell. As a matter of fact, if you read the Gospels, Jesus rarely to never talks about what happens to people directly after they die. If you don't believe me, I encourage you to read through the Gospels, and you may be surprised. Jesus, on the other hand, does talk a lot about this thing called the resurrection. right? Not just Jesus' own resurrection on the third day, but a cosmic resurrection at the end of time. According to Jesus, and really the whole Bible, and also the early Christian creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, which we'll, we'll say together this morning in just a little bit, that at the end of time, there will be a great resurrection. That the whole universe will be renewed by the power of God. And there will be peace between people, between people and God, even between people and animals, who the prophets say will be there too. And at that point, people will be sorted out. On the one hand, the people of God will inherit this new creation. They will rise in new bodies and inherit this new creation. On the other hand, the enemies of God who also rise in new bodies, will be banished, banished to the abyss. And this time there's no coming back from the abyss. And so in this sorting out, it will happen at the end of time. And to this point, it's not controversial what Jesus says to the Pharisees. They too believe in a resurrection and a judgment. What does become controversial is when they proceed to ask the question, yeah, but who are the people of God? who are the people who will inherit this new creation. They assume it's people like them, right? They're the insiders who will inherit the new creation. Jesus says different. You notice who Jesus says will rise in glory at the resurrection and condemn people like the Pharisees. He says, first of all, the queen of the south, a pagan queen who lived at the time of King Solomon in the Old Testament, and also the men of Nineveh, the enemies of Israel who lived in the time of Jonah will rise up in glory and condemn the Pharisees. In other words, non-Israelites, people that the Pharisees assume are outsiders, will in fact be the insiders, the ones who will inherit. Meanwhile, the people the Pharisees assume are insiders themselves, they're in danger of being banished outside forever. They're in danger of being the ultimate outsiders sent to the abyss and to the darkness. Jesus, in a sense, has reversed their expectations. Jesus here is redefining the people of God, you might say. He's saying that the dividing line between inside and outside is no longer an ethnicity. It's no longer even obeying the law. The line is now Jesus himself. If you trust Jesus, then you will inherit the new creation. If you don't trust him, then you won't. Remember last week we said that Jesus is definitely not a great moral teacher. We read the quote from C.S. Lewis. Jesus, in other words, does not come preaching morality. He does not say, here's some rules. If you follow them, you will inherit life. Rather, Jesus comes and offers people himself. And he says, if you accept me, you will inherit life. Jesus is always asking people, what are you going to do with me? And what we have to grapple with this week is why. Why do people not see that offer? Why do they not recognize what is being offered them before their very eyes? And I think that leads us finally to the last question we need to look at this morning, which is a question of 
desire. And so I'm going to read the final part of the passage, verses 33 through 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter it may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Now, I have to admit, when I first came to this part of the passage as I was preparing for this morning, this was the most confusing part to me. This whole, Jesus seems to suddenly shift and start talking about light and lamps, and it seems sort of tacked on. How does this relate to anything we've seen before? But as I've begun to sort of unpack the imagery here, to sort of work through what Jesus might be saying, I think actually this is the perfect conclusion to the conversation we saw begin last week, the conversation that began with the casting out of a demon and the Pharisee's accusation. This sort of sums it all up. But to see that, we need to understand some of the imagery that's at work here. In the ancient world, light was often associated with people's eyes. The eyes were a source of light in the ancient world. And Jesus assumes that here, too, you notice. But eyes, eyes which were the source of light, were also associated with a person's heart, with a person's desires. Now, you probably heard the expression, we even have expressions like this, that the eyes are the window to the soul, or that you cast a jealous eye on someone, that the eyes are connected with our heart. Our eyes reveal our desires in some sense. And so, if that's the case here, what Jesus seems to be saying is, if your desires are good, if you sincerely desire to see God's work, you will in fact see it. In fact, it's right in front of your eyes. Here I am, Jesus says. But on the other hand, if your desires are bad, if you don't sincerely desire to see God's work, then you won't. You'll be in darkness. You'll, in fact, be blind to the thing that's right in front of you. In context, Jesus seems to be referring to the Pharisees' inability to see him, to, uh, inability to recognize what he is or who he is. And that's because ultimately their desires are bad. He seems to be saying, if you really wanted to know, if you really wanted to leave behind your expectations about God and have them made new in me, then you would see me. But because you don't, because you'd rather cling to your own ideas, then you won't. In other words, what Jesus seems to be asking is, do you really want to know? Do you really want to know, Pharisees? You ask me for a sign, but do you really want to know, even if knowing meant you'd have to change everything you thought about God and God's kingdom? Do you really want to know if it meant you, yourselves, had to change? Do you really want to know? And we know the way the Pharisees responded to that question. They said, no thanks. <laughs> We're sort of content with where we are. We're content with our own ideas. We don't want to change. So we know the Pharisees' answer, but the question we need to answer this morning is, what about us? Because Jesus asked us the same question. Do we really want to know? Now, you may be sitting there and you've thought, how do I come to know Jesus? Is it possible to know Jesus. And the good news is, if you really want to know, if you sincerely desire to, to find God and to find the truth, the good news is, Jesus is here to meet with you. That we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a moment, and we'll, we'll issue a call that those who sincerely desire um, to know God, come forward and you will know him. On the other hand, 
if you sort of don't want to know, if you're sort of content with where you are, content with your life as it is, or content with your ideas as they are, then, then you won't see. In a sense, there will never be enough signs for, for you that you're in darkness according to Jesus. That ultimately it all boils down to our desire. Do we really want to know God even if it meant we had to change? Do we really want to know God even if it meant our whole way of looking at the world had to change? That's true of individuals. We have to make that decision as individuals. We also have to make it as a body, though. We have to make it as a church. Because even those of us who are already Christians are still asked that question by Jesus. Do you really want to know? For example, think of how often Christians make prayers they probably don't really mean. For instance, have you ever made the prayer, at least heard someone make the prayer, Lord, we want to know your will for our church. What would you have our church do, Lord? And I think the Lord often responds to that. Really? Do you really want to know what I would have your church do? Do you want to know if it meant you had to change? Do you want to know if it meant all of your expectations about church had to change? Do you really want to know? And that's a question we have to answer, both as individuals and a church. It's sort of the question that I leave you with. But the good news is, if you do want to know, then Jesus himself is here to meet with you. Think about that, and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not hidden from us, that you are right before our eyes, that you have brought your good news and your very self to give to us. But Lord, we pray that we have the eyes to see you. We pray that we are not blinded by our own expectations, our own desires, but that we are open to receive you in faith and be changed by you, not to remain where we are, but to be transformed in your image, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.